Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. Drinking beer in the morning, I fell asleep without a warning, Friday night is when I fly right, so, and I'm gonna be landing on you. Brains, nervous system, just to sort of get you up to speed on really how much you have to know as far as that stuff goes. Um, well, 2606, Brain and Behavior, is a prerequisite for this course. It is possible to do this course without that if you have some background, uh, and I'll hopefully refresh you enough that uh, you'll be okay. So last time we were talking about the idea of a therapeutic window. And the notion here is you want to maintain enough of the drug in the system at, a, at an effective level, depending on what the what you're trying to do. So if you are doing something therapeutically, like controlling schizophrenia, let's say, you want that to be pretty steady. You want people not to have sometimes when they hear the voices and other times when they don't, you want them to sort of not hear the voices and be paranoid. So you want to keep that in a pretty steady state. Um, if the drug has a long time course, that's pretty easy. And how are we going to affect that? Well, remember, roots of administration can affect that. So the best time course, longest time course, is usually going to be something oral. So you're going to give somebody a pill, typically. Now, it may be the case, and I think I mentioned this last time, that you know, depot injections have been used now with, with antipsychotic drugs. Uh, to, somewhat effectively, there is, as I said, I think the downside, which is that when it, if it does wear off and it's a problem, one of the very common delusions people have when they're schizophrenic is that the government has implanted a chip underneath their skin. Uh, if you've seen the movie uh, A Beautiful Mind, spoiler alert, it's a 12-year-old movie, uh, or more than that, maybe a 14-year-old movie, uh, he's schizophrenic in that movie, right? Um, which, the, the part of that movie that actually tipped me off that he was a paranoid schizophrenic, not knowing anything at the time about John Nash, was... <laughs> when he was taken by the government and had a chip implanted in him and I, remember I took a piece of paper. I used to just tell people around me what was, was going to happen in movies and it really pissed them off, so now I just write stuff down and show them at the end. Because uh, so, I try to show people I'm clever. So um, I remember writing down, I was watching it with, with Isabel, my wife, and I wrote down paranoid schizophrenic and just closed it up because he was having the chip implanted, which is very common. Um, paranoid schizophrenic uh, delusion and in fact of course it's schizophrenic in the film still want to know about Price, good on him um, if you're actually implanting a little sort of semi-permeable bladder <laughs> in someone's skin and there's a problem then they're going to see that thing there and of course there's a, <laughs> you might figure maybe somebody's going to try to rip it out um, and the pills work pretty well for most people. So what's done then is you give people um, an oral uh, a pill. On the other hand, if you're taking uh, a drug, and again, same sort of thing with pain management, you might end up taking an opiate, but in pill form, because you can maintain a nice steady amount, <coughs> right? And I mentioned it earlier, Oxycontin is actually a really amazing pain medication. You give people a pill, and it controls all kinds of pain. It's a wonderful thing. Now, the downside, of course, is that when you have a drug like that, and if the main effect you're interested in is the high, all you do is you take either a whole lot of it orally, or you could just crush it up and snort it. 
right? Or put it in a vehicle and give yourself an IV injection. In that case, you don't want a long time course. You want a quick one because you want it hitting the system very quickly to get the, the, the rush, right? So it really depends on what you're interested in. Um, so if we're talking about sort of behavioral angle of pharmacology, we have to do some research in this. I'll be talking about a lot of research, of course. Dose is the independent variable, and response is the dependent variable. We talked about those response curves before uh, last time. Now, the independent variable is what the experimenter controls, and the dependent variable is what you measure, right? You're going to need a control group of some sort or some sort of control condition. Um, you might do the, the study between subjects, so you might have, oh, I don't know, like one group that gets the drug and one group that doesn't get the drug. That's between subjects. And you might actually go with, say, if you're looking at a dose-response kind of angle, you might have one group that gets no drug, one group that gets so many milligrams per kilogram, another group that gets a different dose, a different dose, a different dose. You can do that, and it may be the case that you have a drug that's very long-lasting, so you want to have different subjects. You might want to worry about carryover effects, like, oh, if they've already had this dose, how does that affect how they behave with the next dose, etc. You also might very commonly, in this case, do a within-subjects design where, different, where people get different amounts of the drug. If you think about reaction time and alcohol consumption, very common uh, effect of alcohol is that it increases your reaction time, right? It increases your reaction time because your reaction time gets longer when you drink. So you might go after zero drinks, one drink, two drinks, three drinks, and look at reaction time that people have. Or you could look at all kinds of other uh, perceptual kind of things. You could look at, uh, and we'll talk about a lot of these different, next slide I believe actually, uh, I'll talk about a lot of different kind of uh, variables you could use. But you might be looking at something like vigilance, you know, so somebody, which is cognitive vigilance all day. You just have a dial and an arrow keeps moving and you turn it right if the arrow moves left. You try to keep the arrow right in the middle. You can do that now, of course, typically with a computer. Uh, people get poorer and poorer at that the more they drink. Okay. There's a really you have to do statistical tests on this. Has anyone here not taken any statistics? You've all taken that's good. That's a good thing. So basically all you do is you determine if, if something happened because of dumb luck, random chance, or if the effect that is a real thing, right? The same way they do with say political polls and they talk about, you know, this poll is accurate. Uh, plus or minus two and a half percentage points, like you do twenty. It's the same kind of idea here. So you use some kind of statistical test. One of the really important things in drug studies is placebo controls. Um, you might have a case where, let's say, with the alcohol study that I talked about, we'll say reaction time. Different amounts of alcohol being given to people. When you give people zero alcohol. Right, their reaction time is going to be the best. Now, the thing is, the more alcohol you drink, the longer your reaction time, the, more, the higher your reaction time. 
what would be, give me an alternative explanation other than ingesting alcohol that would cause someone, someone's reaction time to increase as they drink alcohol. Jenna, yeah. I thought Their you had age. one. Pardon? Their age? No, think no. About, just within a person. So okay. I'm giving you drinks, and you've had no drinks. We do your reaction time's pretty good. It gets worse and worse as I give you a drink. So it's within subjects. We'll do it that way. Yeah, please. Loading? What would you say? Loading. Yeah. People have to pee. They get all bloated. Oh, no, you've not got to pee. I can't concentrate on hitting the button. i got to pee. So what can we do? Well, we could actually use a placebo. We give one group of people, so some subjects, we give them drinks, but they have no alcohol in them. The other group, we give drinks that have alcohol in them. And yeah, I know that you'll pee a little bit more with when, you, when you drink alcohol versus when you don't drink alcohol, but it's a pretty good way to control for it. You might wonder at that point, well, people that are in the non-alcohol group are going to know. Right? And you don't want them knowing. How would you control that? Well, it's actually pretty easy. It's surprisingly easy. You use uh, peppermint oil. The drink you give people typically in these alcohol studies is soda water, uh, grain alcohol. It's like just cheap-ass, you know, alcohol, as they call it in the liquor stores, people always call it. And peppermint oil. If you put enough peppermint in something, you can't taste the alcohol. And this is what actually a friend of mine back when I was a postdoc and she was a grad student, Penny, this is what she used to do, is she would give people, and it just tastes minty as hell. And there's so much mint in it, you can't taste the alcohol. And then she would measure all kinds of perceptual variables, what Penny's interested in. And one group would have no alcohol, the other group would have alcohol. And what would happen in that case, in fact, was people that didn't have alcohol thought they were drinking alcohol. Because when you signed up for the experiment, you had to sign an informed consent form that said you may be drinking alcohol. There's a lot of reasons for this. One of them is you want people, let's say somebody has a drinking problem, you probably don't want them in the study. Let's say someone's a Muslim. You're not supposed to drink alcohol at all. And it's not like you go, ha sorry, your religion, uh, I messed you up. So people, you want people to drink, people have a drinking problem, people that can drink alcohol, etc. And in fact, people would come out of this thing and they'd be thinking they were drunk. And then Penny would explain to them, no, you were in the control group. No, I can't feel this. And you're blowing this breathalyzer and they blow a zero. And they go, oh, wow, I guess I'm fine. And they just like... <laughs> so the placebo effect is a powerful real thing. Um, the ethical constraints in experiments like that, of course, are also that you can't let people leave the experiment until they blow below the legal limit. And for some people, they had four or five drinks in an hour, and they were hammered. So what Penny had to do is she would have people, uh, she would set up DVDs, and she would have uh, chips and pop and stuff like that for them. And she'd take, part of the experiment was, give me your car keys before it began. And until they blew in a, in a breathalyzer below the legal limit, she wouldn't give them back their car keys. You could always see when I was a, like I said, this is when I was a postdoc. New building falling apart already. It's uh, sad, really. What was that? It was a metal bar, I think. It just a metal bar. It's a piece of meat bar falling from the... It just fell from the desk. Oh, good. So it wasn't good. Really from the desk. 
Quite the adhesive they used on there. That's got to be Elmer's glue, I believe. <laughs> wow. So that's how we afforded this building. Um, got a few calls to make. <laughs> so, yeah. So what would end up happening was, yeah, people, like I said, they, they thought they were drinking alcohol, and like you know, I always see these students. Now, some, of course, half the people they tended to be graduate students in these experiments. And I'd be walking as a postdoc, and I'd walk around, and you'd see somebody at like eleven o'clock in the morning looking like they have a hangover because <clears throat> they've been drinking since 8 in Penny's experiment. You know, so you see people walking, yeah, like, today's, I'm screwed. <laughs> yeah, free liquor, right? This is even true, though, in non-humans. You might think, well, that makes a lot of sense in people. <coughs> Excuse me. It also happens in non-humans. I remember as a joke, once... Uh, uh, taking some tea and rolling it up in a rolling paper and giving it to somebody and telling them it was marijuana and watching them smoke tea and then saying they were high. That was funny. We also once took a, an oxo cube. You know oxo cubes? You know, like a stock? Uh-huh. Yeah, and we took it and put it in foil and sold it to a guy and told it was hash. It was at a party. It was a friend of ours. When he started to try to hot knife the oxo cube, we said, Stop it! <laughs> it smell horrible. But in fact, it even happens in non-humans. So... You will get cases where, with you'll see if, when you're reading some of these things when you're looking for, for your papers, you might you might you might find all kinds of control groups. You might find you'll find a regular group that had nothing done to them, and that's even rats. I said you'll have a group that had a uh, a sham injection. In fact, so they're held and they're shown a great big needle that's bigger than them because they're rats. <laughs> but they aren't injected. Then you'll get a group that's injected with saline, just vehicle, and no drug. And then finally you'll get a group that is given the drug. And this is all because there's all these other aspects. Like, think about this. When you're, when you're a rat and you're picked up by something that you know, is like six orders of magnitude bigger than you, that's a little stressful. When you get an injection, that's a little stressful. right? So you want to make sure that it's just the drug you're interested in. And you'll almost always find that those groups do show some effect compared to the group that wasn't uh, injected at all. All right? So placebo controls are exceedingly important. Exceedingly important. Uh, There's cases where you give people uh, a painkiller, and you you give one group a painkiller, and you give an analgesic, and you give the other group, of course, a placebo. And then you have them do... Uh, something like, say, the cold presser test, the one I talked about the other day, where you put your hand in really cold, um, ice-filled salt water, which is it, it, painful. <laughs> and even the group that's given the placebo will show some analgesia compared to a non a group that's not given anything. Right? Then you give naloxone, which is a, an opiate antagonist. Let's say this is an opiate. You give them naloxone, and the group that was given naloxone and given an opiate painkiller now shows no painkilling. The group that was given naloxone and given the sham, the placebo, will actually still show analgesia. Right, this is something that, I mean, if you've ever babysat kids or you have kids, you know, you've tried this when they're really young and they say that they, oh, my tummy's sick. Here, take this, it's medicine. 
just a freaking vitamin. Give him a Flintstones vitamin. Did that to my daughter for a couple of years. The only reason we had vitamins in the house. You give vitamins, vitamins. All you know vitamins do, they make your pee full of vitamins. You get enough food. So we just give her like a vitamin C tablet. No, here you go. You'll feel better. She's about four. She looked at me. She said, I think that's a vitamin. That doesn't... Said, yeah, you're too damn smart for your own good, kid. <laughs> Placebo effects stopped working at that point. So, I mean... Like I said, it's not just with, with humans, it's, it's with non-humans as well. Um, and yeah, I think this is the, yeah, this is the group, uh, the experiment rather with the uh, analgesic. So you got two groups, this is Levine, Golden, and Field 77. One given real analgesic, the other one get, are given uh, placebo. They both show analgesia, which actually isn't surprising, though the placebo group shows less analgesia than the real group. But there still is an effect. And then you give them naloxone, which is an opiate antagonist. It basically makes opiates not work, and I'll explain. We'll probably get to, to, to today how that works. And you only get the return of pain and the analgesia. This, is, this was one of those sort of breakthrough studies that said, look, we have to have, even when we're doing stuff like this, we have to have placebo controls, yeah, even in something where clearly... We know the experiment's going to, the, the, the analgesia is going to wear off when you give somebody, not wear off, it's not going to work when we give them naloxone. All right. I don't know if it's co-relational, I should say correlational. Uh, correlational research is, is an important thing. Correlational research is you measure one thing, measure something else, and get an idea. Everything I talked about so far is experimental research. Right? Correlation is not causation. Say it to yourself three times every night before you go to bed. For the rest of your life. Because two things happen together does not mean that one causes the other. It's an important thing to keep in mind. So you might wonder, why would you do correlational research? Well, there are times when you kind of have to. Right? Think about something like nicotine. We can't. The only way to really narrow down that cigarette smoking totally causes cancer, which it does, but the only way to really narrow it down would be to take a group of people, randomly assign them into two groups, and make one group smoke. We can't ethically do that. Dr. Mengele. Dr. Mengele reference. Um, now, the nice thing is we have the correlational data. We also have all kinds of animal data. We know something's a carcinogen. And we can make a pretty damn clear statement that smoking cigarettes causes cancer but it makes you look grown up and cool. <coughs> so you don't do science in a vacuum, right? Like, it's not like unless you're doing, you know, some sort of physics and then you that in a vacuum. <laughs> so you wouldn't just have the correlation of research. People have to understand something about science. And I know a lot of you guys have taken 2127. A lot of you guys have taken uh, the scientific uh, thinking course that with Champ, right, whatever it's called. I don't know. Brandon's version of science, I think is the name of the course. I think that's what it says in the, in the calendar. Um, one experiment doesn't blow the lid off anything. The world doesn't work that way. There was one Einstein, there was one Darwin, and then there was all of us. Right? So you have all kinds of other data along with correlational data, and that is what tells you what's actually going on. Observational, like just unstructured observation is useless. Right? It's useless. But it can lead to ideas. But you don't just watch stuff 
and go, yeah, I know what's happening. That's one of my dumb guy voices right there. <laughs> no, it's just that, uh, you know, marijuana is a gateway drug. Because I saw a guy once, and he smoked pot, and he also took heroin. Therefore, it doesn't work that way. And in fact, that's a great example where correlation not being causation. People see that. It's true. People that smoke weed are more likely to be people that take heroin. It's just true. That's true. So you could see that, and then you could have to do a correlation, and you would find it. There's, there's no doubt about that relationship. The more likely you are to smoke marijuana, the more likely you are to smoke to uh, you know inject heroin. It's true. However, just because two things go together doesn't mean that one causes the other. So it gives you an idea, and then you do a correlation. And go, oh, good. We should ban everything. Everything should be banned. We should all just sit quietly in a room. Turns out, in fact, that also people that like smoking marijuana also like roller coasters more likely. They're more likely to like roller coasters. They're more likely to like scary movies. It's risk-taking behavior. That's all it is. And the risk-taking behavior explains taking heroin because it's kind of risky as well. So marijuana isn't a gateway drug. So it can give you ideas. There's nothing wrong with it. It just gives you ideas. Uh, systematic introspection. What in the hell does that mean? Well, for the psychologists in the room, you guys know about introspection. Okay, this is going to have to move. <laughs> Giant chair. What's that? What are you, we're running a bar? It's like a bar stool. This fan likes that chair. Yeah, I'm sure his fan likes the chair. It just seems like something he'd like. This is a chair. I like sitting on the chair. The chair is fun. <laughs> Let's watch YouTube videos. <laughs> People call me Terminator. <laughs> it's the clue. It's the way I've heard all this crap. Don't worry. I've told him years ago he just needs new new writers. It's uh, he's got to get a whole team. Again, I think I've told maybe his other class. I make fun of people I like. Okay, keep that in mind. If I really didn't like him, I would say nothing because I'd be afraid I'd go on a rant about how much I actually hate him. I actually quite like him. Introspection. It's like I said, the psychologists in the room know what introspection is. That's sitting and thinking about how thinking works. Oh boy, that sounds stupid. It is. Unsystematic introspection is useless. Right? Because if I say, how does your mind work? And you, t- and you say, well, there's a series of little tiny trolls in my head that pull levers. <laughs> I, can even, I can imagine them. I can't actually argue with that. I can call you and call the authorities at that point. But I can't really argue with it. I just can't. Because it's your own thoughts about yourself. It's, it's, it's uh, inaccessible. But if we do it systematically, if we ask people questions, we ask people questions, and we get their answers on some kind of scale, that'll work. The MPQ, the McGill Pain Questionnaire, is used extensively in analgesia research and also in all kinds of you know, applied pain research. It was developed, obviously, at McGill University by Mel Zack and Wall, who wrote an excellent yet very depressing book called The Challenge of Pain. Um, and this thing has, it's amazing, too, because you look at it and you say, how do you, it says, how would you describe your pain? So you, you show where it is on, your, on like a line drawing of a body, and then it asks for like things like words that describe it, but it gives you a list, and it's got really like sharp, 
a pounding thud. It's even got the word exquisite, which just seems to me to be a very strange choice for pain. But because they've done this work, work properly, right? Because they've validated all this stuff, they can do a really good job talking about severity. Talk, and they can even do diagnostic stuff and say, what kind, if it's this kind of pain with these kind of scores, it's probably this disorder. Really pretty amazing. So the psychologist guys in here know this. For you biology students, you may not be as familiar with these kind of things when you're looking at things for your papers. But remember that these kind of questionnaires are validated over and over and over again. Right, so it's not like some guy's just making stuff up. Questions so far? Is that okay? Good? All right. Here's some common dependent variables. So things we might measure in, in, in an experiment. Uh, just arousal level, we can use EEG for that. That's easy. A few electrodes on your head. It's completely unobtrusive. No problem. We can do perceptual things like flicker fusion. Flicker fusion is when do you see a flickering stimulus seem like a constant stimulus? Uh, for most of us, that's going to be around <coughs> somewhere between like 45 hertz and maybe 60 hertz cycles per second. And we're looking at something. That's your flicker fusion. Now, we don't have incandescent light bulbs in here, and you're seeing fewer and fewer of those, which is a good thing, is there? better to use the fluorescence, but with an incandescent light bulb, you know about alternating current, right? We have AC, that's what we plug into the wall. And in fact, the current's on and off, on and off, on and off, and that's at 60, in North America, it's 60 hertz, 60 cycles per second. So it's flickering, yet we don't see a flicker. Uh, in the UK, it's 50 cycles per second, and I guess my flicker fusion rate is right around 51. <laughs> Because I see light bulbs flicker in the UK, and it drives me nuts the whole time I was there. The whole time I was sitting at Oxford going, this is pissing me off. This whole country is, is flickering. <laughs> How you think about television, uh, movies, things like that, right? There's flickering. This is why interlacing works uh, on TVs. You don't see a flicker. Now, drugs can affect that because they affect perceptual things. They might actually make your flicker fusion rate go up. They might make it go down. We can look at thre thresholds. Speaking of light bulbs, we, there is a, a level where you're actually putting current through the filament on the light bulb, but you don't see any light. There is light there. right? There are photons being given off, but you don't see them. There aren't enough of them. They don't hit your threshold. So we can look at thresholds for, for, for vision, for sound, etc. We can also look at things like timing. People's ability to keep track of time. A lot of times what drugs do is they speed up or slow down your internal clock. Amphetamines, for example, speed up your internal clock. I don't mean your 24-hour sleep and wakefulness cycle. I mean your ability to keep track of 10 seconds. When is 10 seconds passed? You have an internal clock that takes care of that. Okay, I'm not going to go into that, how that works because it's, uh, it's a whole course. <laughs> you do a whole course on, on, on animal timing. Um, but suffice it to say, there's, there are oscillators somewhere in your brain that are oscillating, as oscillators tend to do. So if the clock is sped up, 
when I ask you how long 10 seconds has been, you're going to be a little short. If it's slowed down, it's going to be a little long. On the other hand, there are drugs that affect your timing, your ability to say 10 seconds has elapsed, but they don't affect the accuracy, they just affect, uh, sorry, they don't affect the speed, just the accuracy. Uh, Delta 9 tetrahydrocannabinol, THC, stuff from marijuana, actually does that. It doesn't affect your ability to keep track of time, it affects the error rate. So oddly enough, if I had you do 10 seconds, you'd be more likely to say 9 and 11 and 8 and 12, just as likely to say, say 9 and 11 for 10 seconds, a little less likely to say 8 and 12, a little less likely to say 7 and 13, what you get is a nice sort of normal distribution around 10 seconds. Same thing happens with rats, by the way. Even cognitive stuff, memory is a great one. Uh, lists of words. Psychologists, a lot of times, you, they give you a list of words, have you try to recall them. It's a very simple task. Um, it's been done so much that we know exactly how normal people should behave with different retention intervals. Retention interval is just time between what we call study and test. And then we do that, we compare that with uh, how they're doing on different amounts of the drug. Now, you can also do cognitive stuff with non-humans. So you could have a rat run a maze, right? Which is still a memory experiment. Interesting thing here, a lot of times with, with, with memory stuff, there are what are called dissociative effects of drugs, where if you learn something on the drug, when you're off the drug, you don't remember it as well. This is not me giving you advice to get high when you're studying and then come high to tests. You're not going to do nearly as well as if you would if you say, oh, I don't know, did both of those things without being high. But we have trouble sometimes remembering things, and I think some of us have had this experience because I think that there is some drug experience in this room because I'm including alcohol because it's a drug. Out of curiosity, uh, anybody here not ingest any drugs at all? Yeah? You drink coffee? Okay, well, I guess I can. Yeah, okay, so no, eh? Yeah, you, drink, you don't drink coffee? Nope. What about chocolate? You ever eat chocolate? I know. <laughs> <laughs> Chocolate's got caffeine in it. I one time had a guy. Uh, I think he was a Mormon. No, I'm serious. He was, he was a Mormon, and they don't take caffeine, so they don't eat chocolate. Was the only, and that taught this course like 11 times. <laughs> so almost everybody ingests something. But some of us, you know, with the alcohol and with the drinking and all, you ever do something one night and it's a little fuzzy the next morning? No, that's never happened to any of you. And you just forget about it and you go, well, whatever. And then the next time you've done a few drinks, you go, oh, my God. I know what I did. <laughs> Same sort of thing can happen here. We, in fact, take advantage of that therapeutically. When people are being given chemotherapy, for cancer. Chemotherapy is a very, very unpleasant experience. It's unpleasant enough, I imagine, having cancer. But being given something that is the idea here is to destroy parts of your body, hmm, makes you sick. People get pretty ill from chemotherapy. What's often done is, and then what happens then is people associate sickness with going for therapy and going to the hospital. 
So then they don't want to go get their chemo. Or when they do, they start puking immediately. You don't want that. Cancer isn't fun. Chemotherapy isn't fun. <coughs> Making them less fun, not <coughs> So what's often done is people are given uh, benzodiazepine, or they're given diazepam, Valium, just before they take their chemo. Kicks in, they, take, they get their chemo, it wears off, they leave. Works out pretty well because they learned on Valium that the hospital is a place where you puke. Right? It's also been done with medical marijuana. My dad had his brain tumor. I kept saying to him, Dad, two words, medical marijuana. So I said, you should ask. You never know. It's very few times in your life you're going to have a chance to, to smoke weed legally. He never did ask. So we can take advantage of this therapeutically. Uh, vigilance is like I talked about. Usually it's with dials, or you might want to use the mouse now, the computer or the arrow keys. Just keep this in the center. You're not very good at that after a couple of martinis. You're a little bit better at it after caffeine, coffee. You're a little bit better at it after cocaine. Not a lot of cocaine. Not, I can't feel my face, cocaine. Blow, Bobcat, both ways, anyone? Yes, great movie, excellent movie. So it was on TV just like two nights ago or something. Was it? Yeah, it was some, there's some new preview movie channel. They're showing older movies. Yeah, it's a, good, it's a really good movie. Uh, there's actually studies that show that airline pilots, airline pilots on a little bit of cocaine or amphetamine are actually a little bit better at being pilots. It's a small amount. You don't want them, you know. But enough, just a little, little taste, little taste. Why does it scare you? It's just a terrifying thought. I have issues with flying as it is. Ah, safest way to travel. It's safer than walking. More people get hit by cars and die in airline crashes every day. I'm afraid to walk. <laughs> well, now you should just sit right there, Ashley, for the rest of your life. Because, I mean, you better not move. And you know what? As we saw with the building, it might just fall on you. <laughs> so, you know, you shouldn't be paralyzed by fear because then the terrorists win. I, I just like saying that. Day, you know? It's just fun to say. More things we can measure. Um, motor tasks, like, oh, the pursuit rotor task. I love the pursuit rotor task. You got, like, a, a literally a turntable. And you've got uh, a stylus. It's got like a pen on it, and you just got to follow the thing as it turns around. Or it's often now done with a, uh, it's got a light, and then at the end, it's got a little uh, photo cell. And then it can just detect when you leave the light, right? So you just move around. It's a classic psychomotor task. I broke one once in second year during a lab course, and I just, and it was, I imagined a very expensive piece of equipment. I pushed too hard. Snap. So I wrote down some numbers for my data, carefully put it down, and walked away. <laughs> and no one ever knew. <laughs> so uh, tapping rate, I talked about. This is sort of a timing task. Tap every couple of seconds. I tell you, every two seconds, something like that. Whatever. That's a, that's a pretty common one. So a lot of the non-human stuff, as I mentioned, timing. Um, we do timing stuff on animals all the time. Uh, learning and memory tasks, again, 
Heck, you can, you can teach a rat, for example, to avoid one half of a box. You know what's called a shuttle box. Left half is, uh, we'll say it's black, white half is white. Right half is white. Right? And hey, yeah, half the rats, it's the left and half the, it's all counterbalance. <coughs> as soon as they go into one half of the box, they get shocked. They quickly learn to avoid that half of the box. And then you give them, um, you give them PKM Zeta. No, sorry, you give them Zip. It's called Zip, <coughs> which blocks a neuromodulator called PKM Zeta. It removes bad memories. <laughs> awesome. And now they start going back there again because you know I can't remember if this is good or not. Ah! And they go back over here. That's in the early stages of testing, but it's a pretty solid thing that stuff zip. Because it can remove memories from six months ago that are bad. Applications, post-traumatic stress disorder. It won't be it'll be a while yet to last there. So it's avoidance there. Um, the Pollock test, this is, this is something that's used for analgesia. You take rats, put them on a hot plate. It's not so hot, it's going to cook them. Well, you know, you're going to kill the rats in the end of the experiment, but I mean, you don't want to just fry them. So you take a rat, you put them on a hot plate, maybe 60 degrees Celsius. Just, just hot, you know, like how hot your car is in the summer. Yeah, you'll be under, just hot. Yeah, I can fry an egg on this thing. So all it is, it's a way to measure how quickly they feel pain. Because what do rats do when something they lick their paw? They get their paw on them. Jeez, they lick it. And we just look at the amount of time it takes for them to lick their paw. There's some interesting data there that if you give rats, let's say we're giving them morphine, right? That's a pretty good analgesic. So we give them morphine, and the Paw licking takes longer, of course. If we give them morphine in a new environment, it's going to have more of an effect. It's going to have more of an effect in a new environment than in the same environment because tolerance is built up, and it's built up based on the, partially based on the uh, context they were in. Right? And in fact, this is true with, with lots of drugs. That what's hap what happens is, and this happens with people, um, you're used to taking a drug in a certain context, and when you take it in a new context, and what happens is your body kind of, and we'll go into how this works a little bit, but your body kind of gets ready for the drug. So you need a little bit more than you would in a, in a novel context. And in fact, people, uh, there were quite a few uh, American soldiers that came back from the Vietnam War that took heroin throughout the war. You know, they, they were just... They got home. Things weren't working out so well. Lousy life. Went and scored some heroin. Took as much as they would take back in Vietnam and overdosed. And basically their body wasn't ready for it because they'd never taken heroin in San Francisco. They'd only ever taken it in Da Nang. Interesting stuff. Yeah, it's depressing. The only good thing you can say is the Vietnam War had the best soundtrack of any war. You know, it's got CCR, it's got Hendrix, it's got the Stones. Best soundtrack ever. 
So drug effects then, the segue there, can be conditioned. So classical conditioning is what I'm talking about here. This is the idea that you get an unconditioned stimulus and an unconditioned response. That's something you're already hooked up with. That's Pavlov's dogs, right? So if I put meat powder on your tongue, and you're a dog, you're going to salivate. Actually, I did that with you, you'd salivate, but I got this really weird picture in my head of me putting meat powder on students' mouth. It's not going to happen. I got to get that in my head. So we're back to dogs. <coughs> you're hooked up that way. You put food in your mouth, you salivate. Then you play a, uh, Pavlov had a, had a, had a buzzer, it wasn't a bell. Anybody ever tell you it was a bell? There's no bell. It's because of an automatic feeding machine. It was a buzzer. The machine made noise. There's no bell. It's a, it's a common misconception that really bothers me because you see it in books and stuff. You go back and read Pavlov. Well, translations. I don't read Russian. And then the buzzer went off. See, talk like Ishtwa. If the buzzer goes off, then the food's given. Eventually, the buzzer elicits salivation, right? That's classical conditioning. Probably almost all of you have taken intro site. So that's called the conditioned stimulus and the conditioned response. And of course, this shows up in you. If you just think about food right now, you'll salivate. It's just going to happen, right? Now, the thing is, the unconditioned response for a drug might be a high you feel, or it might be analgesia, right? Get, take the drug, analgesia. But the unconditioned response is not the same as the conditioned response, not always. So we tend to think of it that way. And unless you've taken uh, the learning course, psychology 3306 slash biology 3406, for reasons that escape me, um, I guess it probably already was a 3306. You figure that they're always the same. It's always the same direction. But it isn't always the same. If the drug affects the peripheral nervous system, that's actually everything outside your brain, your spinal column. You actually get the opposite effect. That's like the pre it's called a preparatory response. You get you get ready for the drug, okay? Rather than having the same effect. Is key an example of that? Yeah, sure. So, like for example, um, the opposite effect. This is just like the, the heroin example I was saying, where if you were taking heroin always in the same place. Your body gets ready for heroin. When you see a needle, in fact, when you go into that milieu, milieu is a good word, where you've always taken heroin, there are all kinds of physiological effects of heroin, of course. So what happens is your body gets ready for it so it doesn't actually sort of like pull one way and the heroin pulls the other way. Okay, so like, let's say it's a pain reliever. <coughs> sure, the analgesia, yeah. You would start to feel more pain when you were getting prepared to take it then? Uh, no, you would, you would in fact need more to feel, to, to kill pain. You wouldn't actually start to necessarily feel pain. But you would need more heroin to not feel pain, that's the analgesia effect. Okay. okay. On the other hand, the CNS effects, the ones that are the high, you, they actually typically... Um, uh, there's CNS effects typically, right? Central nervous system. And you actually tend, they, they tend to go in the same direction. So people tend to feel drunk more quickly in a bar than they do when they're drinking alone. Because, <coughs> right? uh, you know, a bar is a place where alcohol is consumed. 
You might end up, uh, we'll talk a lot about this idea throughout the course, behavioral tolerance. Behavioral tolerance is learning to do a task while being on a drug. This is beautifully shown in this whole paper, I know, by Campbell and Seaton in 1973. DRL is just, it's called a schedule of reinforcement. And what you're getting a rat to do in this case is to push a bar to get food. DRL means uh, dif uh, differential reinforcement for low rates of responding. It's very hard to get a rat to, to sort of not push a bar quickly. But that's what you do in this case. So you say you have 10 seconds, you can only push it once. It's a hard thing for, well, it's a hard thing for any of us to learn, right? Usually, more is better. Right? If we do more of something, something happens more quickly. This explains the people at the elevator, right? <laughs> Freaking Skinner and some pigeons. So, this is a hard thing for rats to learn, but they can't learn. Takes a long time, but they can't. <laughs> you would imagine it's a very hard thing to learn on amphetamine. Right? Speed. It's going to be even harder to learn there to hold off, to calm down and just respond once in 10 seconds or 30 seconds or something like that. And yeah, if you teach rats DRL and then give them amphetamine, they're just screwed. Because they're like anything else on amphetamine. Yeah. However, if you first teach them about amphetamine, and you do that just by giving them shots of amphetamine, and then teach them the DRL schedule on amphetamine, and they're used to amphetamine, they can learn it. It's called behavioral tolerance. It's the same way people can, people can be alcoholics and be drunk all the time and do their jobs. Yeah, like, would rats screw up when they're off amphetamine? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because the drug effect is, is part of the whole. It's sort of, um, uh, to use a technical learning term, it's kind of an occasion setter. Yeah. But, you know, many of us have met people, we have friends that someday come to us, or, or, or they could be family or whatever, and say, you know, I'm an alcoholic, and I stopped drinking. You go, what? We always seem fine. I was usually drunk. Right? I know people like this. Right? There was a guy where I used to teach in Newfoundland, and I'm not going to say what he teaches, because they could out him. It's not fair. But he's always had liquor on his breath. I just say he wasn't in my department, that's all I'm going to say. He was not in the psych department. But he was, like, hammered all the time. He's wheeling cart, like, I remember, very specifically, remember him wheeling one of these carts down the hall to go from one classroom to another because it didn't have an overhead projector. And you could just smell the booze on him. But he's off to go teach his class in blank. You see how I kept his anonymity? Oh, him. Now you know it's a guy. So people are actually able to function while taking drugs that do it sort of as a profession. I mean the drug taking. Right. I remember, um, I don't know how many of you guys follow baseball, but I remember a, a baseball player, Tim Raines, who played for the Montreal Expos uh, in the 80s. An amazing ball player. Uh, stole over 100 bases his first year. He was just he was incredible. And he hit three-something. And if you hit over 300, that's impressive. 
Actually, hit over 270 in Major League Baseball. That's pretty impressive. So a couple of years later, he started to have a little downward slide, and people were wondering what was wrong. And it turned out, it turned out he was on cocaine, and badly on cocaine. He had cocaine in his back pocket of his baseball pants. In between innings, he would snort cocaine. And then he'd go play left field for the Expo. Sorry, right field? Alex Valentine. No, the Reigns played left. Um, and he'd be on cocaine. And he'd be catching balls and throwing guys out at home, stuff like that. And he's full of cocaine. So that year, he only hit 278 and stole, and stole 83 bases. On cocaine! Again, if you don't follow baseball, that's a really good ball player. That's a guy in today's kind of world that we paid $14 million a year because he was a combination of power and speed. Um, and then he came out and, and, and in the offseason said, yeah, I've got a drug problem. And it's like, oh, that's why he went from being a 300 hitter to a 280 hitter. But then you think to yourself, he hit 280 in Major League Baseball, and he was snorting cocaine between innings. That's behavioral tolerance. He was good at his job. Right? All right. Any questions on that stuff? Is the right said that some people who are severe addicts do things better on the drug than they do off of it? Because they don't have the withdrawal symptoms when they're off the drug. Yeah. And, I mean, and depending on the drug, like, if you think about alcohol, withdrawals, real withdrawal symptoms from alcohol are exceedingly unpleasant. They might be the most unpleasant withdrawal symptoms we'll talk about in this course. They're really more unpleasant than heroin because they last longer. And they're almost they're the same kind of symptoms. They're hallucinating, you get the shakes, uh, DTs, so you feel like there's things crawling up your body. That's exceedingly unpleasant. But if you can, and the way to get rid of that is have a couple of drinks. Those all symptoms go away. So what can end up happening is people <coughs> will perhaps do better. Uh, that's Again, that's somebody who's got a really serious problem. Other questions? Good question. Okay, now I gotta put that there. Oh, good. Firefox wants to update again. <laughs> no, I don't want to draw this. I can't. Let's see what I'm doing. Uh, that's the one. And slideshow from the beginning. Ah. Okay. Basically, this stuff about brains, this should be enough background that if you didn't take 2606 or if you took it three years ago or something like that, this should get you back up to speed. Uh, some of you guys have seen some of these slides, exactly the same slides, except it said, it said biology slash psychology 2606. Um, it didn't say this, though. What's called drugs and behavior? Great book. So you better know how the nervous system works. Right? You know, enough at a level enough that we can we can talk about how the drugs affect your behavior and affect your nervous system. Uh, the nervous system may have basically two types of cells. There's neurons, and they do the communicating, and glial cells, and they do support functions. Glia is a Latin word that means glue. They are not just glue. They do all kinds of fun things. To learn more about wheel cells, take psychology slash biology 2606, which is now, for your pleasure, offered every year. So neurons are the ones we're going to really care about. We're really going to care about neurons. My favorite neuron diagram ever. Some of you have seen this before. 
almost any class, class take with me, that diagram shows up at some point. It shows up in intro, animal behavior. Any class that doesn't show up there. You have to jump in contemporary theory because it's a seminar class where we read articles. But the only place that you show up, oh, it's stats. Okay. There's a neuron. There's the impulse. It's moving along here. It goes to the cell body. It goes down along the axon. It goes out through here to the next neuron. Okay. I did this. I took this picture, this uh, diagram. Borrowed it from whoever had it. No rights reserved. Because uh, um, I can't draw. I used to draw neurons. They look like a moose. <laughs> the, the, the dendrites would all look like um, antlers. And then it looked like a big nose. It just didn't work. Okay. Here's some key neuron facts here. You have one axon, many dendrites. Though, as you can see here, the, the axon might have a whole lot of what are called teleodendria, little bits sticking out. Um, the information tends to travel, dendrite, cell body, axon. Those of you who have taken 2606 know it's not quite that simple, but for our purposes, that'll do. Axons transmit information, uh, dendrites receive information. Okay. And again, I know that most of you have taken 2606, many of you in this very room, many of you sitting in those exact seats this term. As last term. Um, that's a little, and you know that's a little simplistic, but for the purposes of this course, that's really all we need to know. Uh, dendrites grow and change, and they make connections uh, to axons, and that might be the basis of learning. There's a good chance that plays a role. All right. Your, your, your nervous system is electrochemical deal. Um, the, a neuron typically when it's at rest, when it's not sending out information, is at what's called resting potential, which is at negative 70 millivolts. This is done by selectively allowing certain ions in. An ion is just a charged particle. It is a an atom that is either, either taken up or given up an electron. So it gives up an electron. That's the ones we're going to care about mostly. Uh, it becomes positively charged because there's one more positive than it has negative because it's got uh, one more proton than it has electrons. Okay? With stimulation, sodium ions are allowed in. It's called Na positive, sodium positive, because this is an ion that's given up an electron. So we have a negative charge normally. We allow sodium ions in, which changes it from a negative charge to a positive charge. The action potential, that's when the neuron is, we'd say, firing, when it's sending out information. Um, we get changes in one area of the neuron that lead to changes in another area of the neuron. It's not at all. There's a thing called the all or none law, which means a neuron is either firing or it's not. But the idea of the charge is not an all or none phenomenon. So what happens is you have part of a neuron here 
Let's make, it, let's make that a dendrite, okay? And as we're getting sodium rushing in here, right, the charge goes from negative to positive. It goes from negative to being towards positive. It doesn't actually go right to positive. Now, when that happens, changes here, in this area here, we'll say, now lead to changes in the charge here. And I'll explain in a second how that works. But basically what's happening is it's sort of as a mm, cascade or chain reaction, if you want to call it that. Okay, so it goes from one area to another, right? And we're going from, it's a negative charge. We're allowing some positives in, so it's becoming less negative. It's going towards the positive, going towards zero. It's still going to be a negative charge. Okay? Questions so far? All right. Yeah, most of you guys should know this stuff. It's chemical to electrical, which I just think is cool. That's not something important for you to remember. It's just I think it's cool. Okay. Now, when you get an action potential, the interesting thing about this is we have this notion, I think a sort of popular notion that our, and we even use the term in neuroscience, we talk about wiring. We talk about wiring diagrams, talk about circuits. And in a way they are, except that they're not like electricity. Electricity pretty much moves at the speed of light. Nervous transmission moves at about 100 meters per second. It's really, really slow. Like, vanishingly slow. Like, it's bizarre how slow it is. It's amazing that we aren't just constantly lost in thought. So, just like in a wire, though, resistance can affect the flow of, 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 of uh, transmission. And so can myelinate. If you remember back to the diagram, remember there was the parts of the axon that had these sort of big sort of sausage units around them? That's myelin. It's uh, made by glial cells. And it goes around the outside. And again, I'll explain in a second why that's really important. You'll see why. Uh, that'll speed transmission. You get less resistance with a really big axon. Things travel faster with a big axon. We do have some very long axons in our body. Uh, we have some that go from our spinal column down to our legs that are, that are literally like that long. And I find that exceedingly creepy, and I don't know why. It's like, it's like thinking about how an egg is a cell, like a, like, a, like a chicken egg. Isn't that weird? A giant single cell. I don't know. I just find it weird. I have a problem with it. I just find it weird. Yeah, now we're going to be pretty dope. Well, the, that's what I did. Um, normally, we're resting potential because of a process called active transport. Because of active transports, active transport pumps out, ah, see, the S should be here, uh, sodium and pulls in potassium. You would think you'd be all working on negative ions, but actually, oddly, it doesn't. Strange way it works. Um, in a 3 to 2 ratio, so you get a negative charge across the membrane. Okay? So sodium, you have three sodiums outside and two potassiums inside. You got more negative, more positive outside than inside, you got a negative, a net negative, right? So you got a negative charge across the cell membrane. This takes energy. 
This isn't something that's 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 free. Uh, your your brain is an exceedingly expensive uh, piece of gear, metabolically. You know, we're talking about seventy five percent of your oxygen, twenty five percent of your glucose is, is is running your brain. This also explains things like why when cells aren't used, they die. Because this is a really expensive thing to run. So there's programmed cell death in neurons because if they don't, and when they don't synapse, when they don't connect, that makes complete sense, right? Because if there wasn't, you'd have all these cells doing this for no apparent reason. Okay, you got questions on this? There's a thing called a sodium-potassium pump. Come on, animate. There you go. That's not what it looks like. <laughs> this is a representation. But do you see what's happening here? Here's outside the cell. Here's inside the cell. It just pumped out three sodiums and in come two potassiums. So there you are. You see, it's really simple. You got this guy thing here that looks like a pair of pliers. It doesn't really work. So all it's doing then is constantly doing this. It's like a pump. It's a chemical pump. And you get tons of these on all your neurons. So you might have a sodium potassium pump here. Okay. A couple there. And they're trying to work against this sodium coming in. But basically, they, they'll shut down when there's too much sodium. And then, that means that over here, now the sodium from here can move along into this part of the cell and maybe, shut, if it's enough sodium, fight against these extra sodium-potassium pumps that are here. Why is it that myelin speeds transmission? Because, <coughs> breathe in something unpleasant. Anyway, if we've got this myelin here, we only have to have a sodium-potassium pump here and here. The rest of the place we don't, have, we don't worry about it, right? That'll speed transmission. And this, as I said, takes energy, as you can guess. Um, is it because it makes encoding things easier? I don't really buy that. That means like remembering, understanding, representing the world. I think it leads to faster reactions. Um, having something, when you think about it, a, resting, a neuron at rest isn't really resting. It's an unfortunate name, resting potential. A neuron at rest is like a drawn bow. It takes a lot of energy to keep a bow drawn, but when you let go, it fires very quickly. Right, as compared to like if you just had an arrow sitting in there and just pushed it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't fire very quickly. So I sort of always figured it would allow for faster reactions. The pump sort of stops, sodium gets in, and that should be Na positive and K positive, and potassium goes out. <coughs> and now we've got a case where process has been reversed, and now we get toward going towards a, a positive charge. Going towards a positive charge. The whole thing sort of reversed later. And this for the cell to sort of get back to a resting state, which again isn't really nested. Uh, to get back to resting potential, uh, it takes some time, and that's why once a cell fires, it takes some time for it to fire again. It has to kind of reload. There's what's called a refractory period. 
that make sense? See how that works? Okay. Now, biochemically, so we have these, how does the sodium get in? Well, there's things called neurotransmitters. A guy named Otto von Levy uh, did a neat experiment in 1921. Maybe you've heard about this before. He basically stimulated the vagus nerve of a vagus nerve of a frog's heart, which slows the heart down. Good. Frog is opened up on a bench, right, on a lab bench. Then he washed the heart with a solution. Okay. What Levy is thinking here is he's saying there's got to be chemical here. It's not. We know it's just not electrical. He did it with. He stimulated the, the nerve with, with electricity. <coughs> but he knew it wasn't just electrical. He had to be a chemical part of it as well. So he takes saline, right? And the idea here is he's going to collect the solution. He poured the solution on a second heart, so he's got another frog wide open. I have always imagined he did this in a castle, probably with a guy named Igor assisting him, a lot of lightning in the background. I just think it, it seems appropriate. And yeah, and the heart slowed, the second heart slowed. And then he got up, put a top hat on, and said, hello, my baby. <laughs> Old joke, I use it all the time, but I still enjoy it. It's funny, like cartoons from like 60, 70 years ago, we've all seen, I think that's excellent. Because those are old. Like, you know, when he, in that, in that uh, cartoon, when he opens up the frog, like he opens up, opens up the box and someone's hidden in a building, it's like the year 2002. <laughs> the guy's got a late ray gun of some sort. He called the substance Vegastoff because he was German and there are no words in German. There are only compound words. Vega stuff. It's actually acetylcholine, which is not nearly as cool a name as Vega stuff. That's what I call this. Well, I think it's stuff, and it's on the Vega stuff. I call it Vega stuff. I think it's a very good name for this stuff. Yeah, that's a good name. Did the same thing with a heart. Got more frogs. He's like, now I have a no research program. I open up frogs and pour things on them. So he did this more frogs, and he this is another nerve that speeds, makes the heart beat, speeds it up. He ended up with a, a sped up heart. So he did exactly the same procedure. When he collected this, he called it this speeds up in the heart, and yeah. No, he didn't call it that. I just made that up. This one was epinephrine. Or adrenaline, if you want to call it that. No one does anymore. No one seems to call it that anymore. Cool. Okay, so that's how the first neurotransmitters were discovered, first times they were discovered, they were not like how they were invented. It's not like before that we didn't have any. Like a student last term in the brain behavior test said that Darwin invented natural selection. <laughs> no, he discovered it. It's like saying that Kepler invented planetary motion. <laughs> Before that, the planets were still, you know, and then Kepler came along and said, I'm going to make them move! 
Kepler was German, right? I'm just, I'm in a, a bit of a German phase right now, so I'm just doing things with German accents. All right. You want more planets? I command you! That's, I got two Germans. I got the guy who talks like, sort of like that, and the really mad Germans probably interrogating somebody. Watch too many war movies. All right. So these chemicals, they move across uh, synapse. That's the gap between the axon and the dendrite. <coughs> so neurotransmitters, that's these chemicals. There's a whole bunch of them, and I'll talk about the ones I want you to know about. Um, they're released across that gap. Now, if all the transmitter isn't absorbed, it is taken back up, and that's known as reuptake. <coughs> We don't, in 2606, I talk about the mechanism of reuptake. We don't have to worry about that. Just know that there's reuptake. You want to know, I can tell you, but no reason to talk about it now. So basically what happens is the, the, the originating neuron gets the neurotransmitter back because it, it, it didn't end up uh, binding to the next neurotransmitter across the synapse. Okay? I make fun of the Germans. Reuptake's a pretty good compound word, too. <laughs> But if it was German, it would be back into the net on or something like that. It wouldn't just be reuptake. It would be very descriptive. Anybody speak German? I always ask this. Because this is true, right? The Germans got like compound words that long? Mm-hmm. Yeah? yeah? Yeah. Okay. So I'm not completely out of line here. I, I'm, my last name is Swiss German. Broadbeck. Breadbaker! You know. What do you do? I make bread. Your name will be Broadbeck from now on. I don't know how that worked. I don't know what I was doing there. All right, there's a couple of nice synapse diagrams that I found. There's a lot of variation in synapses, by the way. Oh, by the way, synapse means gap. It's a Greek word. It means gap. So don't say synaptic gap. It drives me nuts. It's like saying DVD disc. HIV, or my favorite, HIV virus and ETM machine. What's your PIN number? Just... Ugh. Depresses me really. Pin number. <laughs> you have an ATM machine? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. You're saying I'm redundant? I repeat myself. I say things over and over again. It's a little joke there. Um, a lot of variation. Uh, some heat synapses are inhibitory. Now, how the hell does that work? Because we're talking about s- sodium coming in. Typically, the way they work is they the inhibitory ones cause chlorine to go in. Chlorine's going to have a negative charge, Cl negative. Okay? Okay, so Cl negative. And some are excitatory. In fact, the ones we typically think about are excitatory, that's the ones with the sodium coming in. But there are inhibitory neurotransmitters too. In fact, the second most common neurotransmitter in your brain makes chlorine go in, not sodium, go into the next neuron. What's that going to do? Well, it's going to make the neuron less likely to fire because it makes the charge even more negative. Okay? Questions on that stuff? Because I think it's a pretty good time to stop. All right, I will see you guys on Wednesday, and we'll continue talking about this and probably get into the top, the slides on dependence and addictions. Take a look at those, too. Thanks, guys.
drinking beer in the morning. I fall asleep without a warning. Friday night is when I fly and I'm gonna be landing on you. That's how you do The kitchen floor is stuck all day. We not so turn on the light cause I'm gonna be calling on you. You got beer, rice, whiskey is tight and I got no money. It's beer, tonight. Your time is tight and you think it's funny. I'm on the table today. Hollows don't know when to say. I'll buy you a bottle of Everclear and I'm gonna drink more than you. Time to go on a run. The soul is flowing, I'm gonna be spun. Chronic generation speed is gonna be counting on you. You got beer, rice, whiskey is tight, and I got no money. It's beer tonight. It's time to decide, and I think it's funny. Yeah, beer, rice, whiskey is tight, and I got no money. It's beer tonight. It's time to decide, and you think that it's funny. Beer, rice, whiskey is tight, and I got no money. It's beer tonight. It's time to decide, and you think that it's funny. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.